Good morning, everybody. The scripture reading for today is uh, in the book of Genesis. If you're new, uh, you will uh, know that we've been working through the book of Genesis, and so it'll be easy to find it. It's the first book of the Bible. Um, and to even help you out more, it's on page 27 of the, the pew book in uh, front of you, if you don't have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take that one in front of you. Take it home with you. Our, uh, our scripture reading is in Genesis 32. Verses 22 to 32. Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. The same night he arose and took two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let go unless you bless me. He said to them, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the sinew of his thigh. This is the word of the Lord. If your Bibles have accidentally closed, I'll ask you to open up, them up again to the latter half of Genesis 32. The struggle is real. So goes the, the modern expression. And it makes you wonder, like, who, who's doubting the existence or the authenticity of the struggle? Perhaps it's those of us who grew up in the 1980s when WWF wrestling was at its heyday. You know, my, my childhood was, was filled with characters like Junkyard Dog and Rowdy Roddy Piper and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, my first crush was on his manager, Elizabeth. My, my, uh, my friends and I would give each other um, those, you know, those dense rubber figurines, replicas, uh, we'd give those as birthday presents to each other and then we'd play with them in uh, little toy rings. We'd gather around our TVs to watch the weekly action and after the broadcast, we'd try to reproduce the moves in our living room. Um, the arm of the couch was like the perfect height for a top rope. None of us ever had access to pay-per-view. So, you know, we had to wait to hear about the big matches the next day. And the match that we were most excited about when I was a kid was WrestleMania 3. 
uh, where Hulk Hogan defended his heavyweight championship title against Andre the Giant. And it was touch and go there for a little while. You know, Andre and the Hulk, they, um, they were neck and neck. It seemed like the Hulk was incapable of inflicting any kind of damage on the 525-pound giant. But then an opportunity presented himself, itself, and Hulk Hogan was able to clothesline Andre the Giant and take him off his feet and then do his classic leg drop pin from the top rope, and it was over. It was all over. Hulk Hogan emerged victorious. Now, I was devastated to find out when I got a little bit older that all of that was fake. <laughs> you know, like all of the rivalries, all of the moves, most of the injuries, uh, they were all scripted and staged. And then when I got a little bit older still, I learned that there's actually a word for that. Kayfabe. K-A-Y-F-A-B-E which is the convention of presenting staged performances as genuine or authentic. Well, man, I, I felt cheated. I felt cheated when I discovered that during the time uh, when Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, when their feud was raging, when it was at its bitterest, in real life they were actually really good friends. Andre the Giant was at Hulk Hogan's wedding. They were, they were buddies. And I didn't like that. That's not right. As it turned out, the struggle was not real. But back here in the middle of Genesis 32, Jacob finds himself in another struggle. And as we'll see, it's one that is all too real. Jacob's rivalries are also real. Those are not put on. And our passage today is a sort of interlude between um, different feuds that we see play out with different people. So Jacob's feud with Laban is behind him, thankfully. And his feud with his brother Esau, which has been going on since even before they were born, lies just ahead of him on the other side of the river Jabbok. But this is supposed to be the calm before the storm. As far as Jacob knows, Esau is, is barreling down on him as we speak. And he's coming with a whole army, 400 men behind him, who could only have um, bad intentions. As we saw last week, uh, Jacob's made the necessary arrangements. He, he's prayed, most importantly. Uh, he's made provisions for the worst possibility. He's, he's splitting up his party into two camps to kind of minimize the losses, the potential losses. He has sent on ahead of him a whole parade of presents meant to appease the anger of his brother. He's done about all that he can do, and now all of his people and all of his possessions are on the other side of that river. And Jacob, the text says, is left all alone. Or is he? And are his rivalries only on either side of him? Are his feuds merely horizontal? And by that I mean like with other people. We're going to find out today on pay-per-view 
as we watch the OG WrestleMania. So we're going to examine this passage in four acts. If you're taking notes, these are four main headings that you can um, write in some thoughts and ideas underneath. Four acts. Number one, grappling. Number two, clinging. Number three, naming. And four, maiming. Grappling, clinging, naming, maiming. Let's look first at grappling. And let's set the scene here, okay? It's, it's dark, it's um, at night, Jacob is all alone. And right, right away, your spidey sense should be tingling, okay? Because t- things tend to happen in the book of Genesis when it's dark and it's nighttime and people are all alone, okay? I, don't worry, I'm not about to give another soliloquy about Halloween. This is not going to be a, a horror story. I'm just alluding to the fact, uh, as we've already seen in our study, that significant things seem to happen at night, when Jacob especially is all alone. Take Bethel, for example. That was meant to be a time and a place where Jacob was, he was supposed to get some quality shut-eye that night, him and his rock pillow. Instead, uh, he was treated to a most glorious and life-changing vision of the Lord, uh, a, a great revelation to him that, that charted the next course in his life. And I'm sure Jacob's spidey sense was also tingling at this moment, be, mainly because when we left him last week, he was, quote, greatly afraid and distressed because he had heard the report that his brother was coming after him with 400 men. So no doubt Jacob is on pins and needles that night on the edge of that river. Every time he heard a splash that was probably a fish, you know, he thought it was a horse's hoof. Every sound must have startled him. Every every little uh, shadow must have made him wonder if this was finally it. If, if he was finally finished. And then, all of a sudden, some guy is on top of him, grabbing him, trying to, trying to overpower him, trying to put him in a full Nelson. Is this Esau? Jacob might have wondered that, but I'm, I'm sure he, he would have concluded very quickly... Uh, that it wasn't. After all, they're, they're twin brothers. As I say, they've been wrestling since they were in utero. So y- you get to know each other's bodies. You get to know each other's patented moves. And this guy is definitely not Esau. And uh, his, you know, his heel felt a little different when Jacob tried to grab it. So then who is this guy and what does he want? It can't be some common thief, you know, hoping, up to, hope, hoping to bind up the straw man, strong man so that he can carry off all his stuff. can't be that because all of his stuff has already been carried off. He's got nothing, as far as anyone can tell, and he's all alone. Can't be, can't be that. So again, who is this guy that's on top of me, and what does he want? You know, in uh, Mexican-style wrestling, 
the luchadores, they wear masks to obscure their identities. And the most humiliating thing that could happen, I, I learned this from watching Nacho Libre, <laughs> is if when your opponent defeats you, he strips off your mask and reveals your true identity. Now something similar is going on with this guy. His identity is masked by the deep darkness of the night so that when the morning is threatening to break, when the, when the dawn is about to come, this man is desperate to be done with the match. Apparently, it wouldn't be a good thing if Jacob was to look upon his face. Well, I hate to ruin the drama, but I'm going to have to so that we can get to the point and start talking about some things. It really does ruin the drama to find out who this is because as you see that as the narrative progresses, you get more and more hints. And, and the drama is just excruciating, the tension that builds to who is this man? What, what is this man's identity? And I don't feel bad about uh, blowing it right off the bat here because our English Bibles already ruin it for us. You know, I bet you every single one of you, the heading on your Bible says, Jacob wrestles with God. It's like, ugh. Okay, so we know right off the bat who it is that's wrestling with Jacob. This is God in the form of a man. And uh, many interpreters down through history have thought that this must be uh, Christophany. That's just a fancy word for a pre-incarnate uh, revelation, appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's certainly an intriguing idea, and I can understand why that, that would be appealing, but in my opinion, there aren't enough clues in the text itself that would lead us to that conclusion. We know that from our study in Genesis that the Lord has made his presence known in a lot of different ways. He's not just tied to one method of revelation. There's dreams, there's vision, um, there's uh, angels. And actually the presence of the Lord is most frequently signified by the presence of an angel. And an angel in the form of a man. So you think about Abraham and his three friends his three visitors who uh, stopped by his tent and he fed them. These three, we come to find out, are to be identified with God himself. Three angels, three men, but representing the presence of God. The bottom line here is that Jacob is wrestling with God. But as this is dawning on Jacob, it must have been quite confusing for him, even as it's likely confusing for us today. Why on earth would the Lord be wrestling with his friend? This man whom he has specifically chosen to, be, to, to enter into covenant with and to, to make very great and precious promises to, he, the Lord has chosen Jacob to do that to him, to be with him, and to help him, to do him good. How is it good that the Lord and his chosen man are now rolling around on the ground? 
And it's interesting, just a note here, that the Hebrew word for wrestle in verse 24 has for a, a root of that word the word for dust. So it paints a, a very uh, nice picture for us, doesn't it? They're rolling around. One guy's on top, dominating, then the next guy is, and they're all over the place, and dust is flying up in the air. And we have a similar expression. We, we say that these guys have gotten into a bit of a dust-up. But back to the pressing question, how is it good for Jacob that God is now trying to put him in a figure-four leg lock? Well, I'm going to let that question just linger for another minute while I ask you another question. And this is the question that mothers always ask when they hear lots of banging and yelling. And, you know, your mom walks in to see you and your brother completely at it, at each other's throats. You're in the middle of a battle royale. And what does she ask? She says, who started it? And that never is a clarifying question. My mom never learned this. Like she, it's, she doesn't get a good answer because both kids are like pointing in opposite directions. He did. Anyway, let's ask that question of the text. Who started this? Verse 24. It says, a man wrestled with him. And we know who that man is. So do the substitution. God wrestled with him. The headings in our Bibles are, are almost always Jacob wrestles with God. But the text actually says that God wrestled with him. This is something that the Lord initiated. But why? So we got to pick up our previous question. How is... How is this, the Lord doing good to Jacob? And maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, it'll help if I put it this way. How is it good that God is now trying to put Jacob in a submission hold? Jacob is not easily put in a submission hold. You understand? This is a man who has fierce determination. He has self-sufficiency. He has all kinds of skill. And whenever that fails, he all, he's got lots of tricks and gimmicks and schemes to resort to. Moreover, Jacob is unbelievably strong. We saw that earlier when he single-handedly removed that rock off of Rachel's well. That's a three- or four-man job, and he did it all by himself. This is one strong dude. And this is one stubborn dude. And now we see it, his strength, his resolve, his stubbornness, as he grapples with God, the text says, until the breaking of the day. Now, I wasn't introduced to real wrestling until I went to seminary. You know, in my day, it was, it's, it's not a a big uh, sport in Canada, so I didn't even really know anything about actual real wrestling until I went to seminary. And I quickly became friends in seminary with a hog farmer from Iowa named Corey, and Corey was an all-star wrestler in high school. 
And uh, one night, I, I was asking him questions about it and interested in, in uh, what it's all about and his career. And so one night, we went to the gym and we got the mats out so that Corey could teach me a few things. And I quickly discovered that wrestling, that kind of wrestling, was not my, my thing. It was probably not going to be something that I would stick with for a couple of reasons. Um, one... And I probably should have anticipated this, but when you're wrestling, right from the starting position, you're really close to the other dude, okay? I mean, too close. I, I, I mean, I liked Corey, but I didn't like him that much. And then second, about one minute into it, I was completely winded. I mean, I was soaking with sweat. I was doubled over trying to catch my breath. And remember, at the time, I'm 25. It's not like I'm doing this today. That, that would happen in about 10 seconds today. But I was in pretty decent shape when I was 25, and still, a mu- one minute into the match, and I can barely breathe. Jacob wrestled with the Lord all night long. And it shows you his sheer determination, his, his will to win. You see his self-sufficiency, his, his inner and his outer strength, his, his constant striving to gain the advantage. All of these characteristics have defined Jacob's life up to this point. And, and what do you make of those? I list those as his characteristics, and, and what do you make of that? I think the chances are that you admire them. I mean... Yes, he's the father of Israel, but he sounds like an American, right? That, that's, what we, that's what we love. That sounds like everything necessary to make it in this dog-eat-dog world. These Jacob's uh, skills, they sound like a skill set that, w- that you'd want to have, you know, on the streets. Maybe so. But it's a skill set that is ill-suited for the life of faith. And that is precisely the, the life that the Lord has called Jacob to. And that's precisely the life that the Lord has called us to. Jacob, if I could switch the metaphor here for a minute, Jacob is a wild stallion. He's strong and beautiful. But to be useful, he has to be broken. Someone has, to, someone has to subdue him. Someone has to literally sit on him while he kicks and barks and snorts and squeals. So let me ask you this. Would, would you ever question whether a, bonco, a bronco buster, I think that's what they're called, you know, the guy that breaks horses, would you ever question whether that guy was good? Would you ever question his sometimes painful, aggressive methods and maneuvers? Then why, friend, do you question the Lord when he wrestles with you? Why do you doubt his goodness when, when circumstances are, are laid on you like a heavy saddle and you feel their weight 
And your first instinct is to doubt whether he, he loves you or whether he actually is good. No, he's in the process of, of breaking you so that you might be useful for his purposes, so that you might be equipped for the life of faith. Your stubbornness, your, your skill, your self-sufficiency, your pride, all of those must be totally subdued. And so it is an objectively good and gracious thing that the Lord would put you into a submission hold. Let's move to Act 2, clinging. And the change in, our, in points here really is meant to reflect a change in grips that are discernible by verse 26. But let's just go back a bit to see what's changed. Another kind of wrestling that I was into as a kid was arm wrestling. And we did this a lot at school, you know, on our desks, on the cafeteria table, wherever. I was always able to hold my own with my peers, you know, win some, lose some type of thing. Although I always, I seem to recall that, that we always ended up fighting about the rules. You know, like, were you allowed to grab onto the table with your other arm? I don't know. Were, is it okay that your elbow moves a little bit? Or the other guy's elbow seemed, or, or the guy, we, we don't know. None of us ever knew. We ended up fighting about it. Come to think of it, they ought to publish more widely the rules for arm wrestling. You know, for the sake of middle school boys everywhere. But then I'd arm wrestle with my dad or challenge some Brian Jacobs type in my church. And in those matches, it, it looked like I was holding my own. You know, for long stretches of time, me and my dad would be deadlocked. You know, I'd push and push against him and go, I'd get nowhere with him. And, but, then, but then he seemed to be pushing against my hand and it got him nowhere. And then at some point, minutes into it, when our arms hadn't even moved substantially off of that starting position, out of nowhere, my dad would just pound my hand down in one swift motion. It was almost as if he was toying with me. <laughs> A similar thing occurred that night by the Brook Jabok. It might be a little confusing to understand that this mystery man was the Lord and then to read that there was a struggle and that the man seemed unable to prevail. You're like, that, none of that really adds up. Until you read in verse 25 that the man, quote, touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Look at that again. The Lord dislocated Jacob's hip with a touch. Frederick Beekner, who I don't always agree with, but who I, I love reading, he's a wonderful author, he interprets this situation perfectly, I think. And let me quote him here. The sense we have, which Jacob must have had, that the whole battle was from the beginning fated to end this way. 
that the stranger had simply held back until now, letting Jacob exert all his strength and almost win, so that when he was defeated, he would know that he was truly defeated. So that he would know that not all the shrewdness, will, brute force that he could muster were enough to get this. Jacob will not release his grip. Only now, it's not a grip of violence, but of need. Like, a grip, like the grip of a drowning man. Realizing his defeat, Jacob's grip changes. It goes from clawing to clinging. It's, it's hard to describe, but, but you know the difference when things slightly change. I, I once got some advice on child rearing, and especially the... Uh, the feature of child rearing that involves corporal punishment. I, I once got some advice from uh, a friend of my parents. I won't mention his name because this, is, uh, this advice is not politically correct these days. It's biblical, but it's not very popular, so I'll withhold the name. Anyway, we, we wonder how, how much should we spank our kids? You know, we don't want to hurt them, uh, but when there's a showdown, like what, what, what are some rules to govern that. And my friend's advice was spank until the cry changes. <laughs> That's why I didn't tell you his name. No, but you know, there's a cry from a kid that signals defiance. And there's a cry that signals compliance. And you're aiming to, to get to that, that change of cry. Similarly, there's a, there's a singing on a Sunday morning, and then there's a, a worship. You know, sing, and, and the two might look and sound very similar, but there is a major difference between those two. There, there's, a, there's praying, and, and sometimes you can pray for a long time before you really start praying. Because there's a praying, but then it, there's a slight little shift where it becomes pleading. It's the gracious work of a good God that he would wrestle Jacob until his cry changed, until his grip changed. As I said, from clawing to this clinging. J Jacob recognizes the other man's superiority, at this point. And so he holds on for a blessing because only the greater can bless the younger. And Jacob knows all this. And so here we have one of the most beautiful lines in all of Scripture. Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is Jacob in that desperate but wonderful place of recognizing that he needs nothing else. He desires nothing else except for the blessing of God. And I would ask you today, friend, are you at that place where you've recognized that that is what, what matters? That's the only thing that matters. Or are you still bucking and kicking? Are you still striving and seeking after anything and everything but the blessing of the Lord? When will you realize that nothing else matters? 
Nothing else is worth pursuing. Nothing else is worth possessing and clinging on to. You're, you're meant to, you're made to cling to the Lord. So cling to Him and don't let Him go until He blesses you. You can even say that in your trials, in the midst of your trials, and in your prayers. Use that language. It's okay, you can, you can plagiarize. Jacob won't mind. Even say, I will not let go until you bless me. Cling. Let's turn to Act 3. Concerns naming. Naming. Now another aspect of WWF wrestling that I enjoyed as a kid was, was all the names that these wrestlers had. You know, George the Animal Steel, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Tito Santana, it goes on and on. It was a very interesting cast of characters, to say the very least. And even just hearing the name, you know, kids, you're, I'm speaking a different language. I mean, you're even asking, what's WWF? Isn't it WWE? And these, these old names mean nothing except maybe Hulk Hogan. But even as I say the name, you can begin to picture the guy because it just, the name tells you so much about the person. King Kong Bundy, okay? Even if you've never seen him, it probably won't surprise you to learn that he weighed in at 458 pounds. Nor would it surprise you that Jake the Snake Roberts had a pet cobra named Damien that he would sometimes sick on his opponents and other times would just wear around his neck. We ask the question, what's in a name? And the answer is, everything, apparently. A person's whole identity can be wrapped up in a name. And this is often the case in Scripture. You can see this especially in our passage this morning. Look especially in the section uh, verses 27 to 30. And the key word there is name. It's repeated over and over again. Um, everyone's asking, what's your name? What's your name? Oh. Jacob, for his part, is preoccupied with learning the name of this man that he's clinging on to for dear life. Because if he knows his name, then he knows his identity. But that's a bit ridiculous at this point. Because at this point in the story, it's become very obvious to Jacob who this man is. Jo Jacob knows exactly who this is. And that's why the man himself asks, why is it that you're asking my name? You know my name. But the more important exchange is in verse 27, where the man asks Jacob's name. Now, of course, this seems ridiculous and unnecessary too. If we're talking about God, God knows exactly who Jacob is. Why does God need to know his name? But the issue is, does Jacob know who he is? God's question really forces the issue. What is your name? And so, let's see, how does Jacob respond? He says, my name is heel grabber, deceiver, shyster, scammer, angler, striver. 
That's essentially what he says when he answers Jacob. This amounts to a confession. In uncovering his name, Jacob is uncovering everything about him that is ugly and evil and detestable. And this is so important. Do you know that before you receive any blessing from the Lord, that you're going to have to do the same for yourself? Okay, you're going to have to confess, which, which actually is a, you know, what that word means is to say with, which is to agree with God about the vileness of your sin. That's what's demanded of you, to repent and confess your sin. But here, here's the good news for sinners who confess. Listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to this blessing in verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. In other words, there's a blotting out of your old name, your old identity, your sin. You're given a brand new name, a new name, a a, a new standing, a, a righteous record. In, in Jacob's case, well, sorry, in Israel's case, I've got to get used to that, his new name is Israel. And that, it turns out that that's actually very difficult to know precisely what that means. But it's clear from God's own explanation here that it has to do with the fact that Jacob strives successfully with God and man. And the actual name Israel might reverse that idea and say something like God strives. I don't know. It's, it's a very difficult uh, problem. You, you might um, get some help in your margin notes or that sort of a thing. Uh, it's, it's one of these things that's debated among scholars and there's no real, cl- believe it or not, there's no real clear consensus of what the word Israel means. But it, it appears that it means something like God strives. Nevertheless, the point is, this is a new name. This is a new identity. And thus, this is a brand new start for Jacob. And even the scenery reflects this, as we read in verse 31, that, quote, the sun rose up on him. This is a brand new day for Jacob. And this is the blessing that will come to all whom God wrestles with. Whom who, who God brings to this point of humility and confession. They're given a new status, a new standing, a new identity. And this is not just a blessing that can be yours in the present. This is a promise that is held for us in the future. And so we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Saints, you are in store for a new name. You have one. You have a new standing, a new identity right now. But you're going to receive a new name when you overcome. Let he who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now Jacob, in turn, names the place. 
We've seen Jacob a number of times. All, you know, he, he likes to memorialize a significant place with a name. And he calls this place Peniel, which means the face of God. That one's, that one's easy. That one is the face of God, which you know, he knows that that's, that's who he's seen. And contrary to all expectation, he has not been destroyed. Rather, he has been saved in the midst of this. He's been strengthened. He's been blessed incredibly by, by his encounter with the Lord in this very place. And so he memorializes that place as Peniel. And speaking of memorializing, let's turn to our fourth and final act before our time expires. And that is the maiming. Let's look for a minute at the maiming. Verse 31. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel. Oh, hold on a second. Penuel? I thought it was Peniel. Well, Moses is actually helpful here because he's now referring to it as it's come to be known uh, to his audience. You know how place names change a little bit. There's slight variation. You know, Kinesis, Kinesius, same place, same difference. Well, he, um, what, how, how is he uh, passing this place? Limping because of his hip. It turns out that God's maiming of him was going to be permanent. And it was going to be painful. You know, my own father has a dislocated hip. And even though he almost never complains, I don't know if I've ever heard him complain about the pain, I know for a fact how painful it is and how debilitating it is for him. And some of you, I know, live with permanent damage, chronic pain, prolonged problems, whether they be physical or economical or relational. You shouldn't think that if you only yield to the Lord then the Lord's going to remove the hard providence that he's currently using to bring you to that point, to sanctify you. Do you realize that it's also a grace for the Lord not to remove that thing that's making you entirely dependent on him? Or at least realize that you're entirely dependent on him? It's a grace that the Lord would keep that providentially in your life. I'm not trying to minimize the struggle. I'm trying to maximize your view of the goodness and the grace of God in your life. The Apostle Paul understood this. He, he had, we understand, some sort of debilitating chronic pain problem that the Lord was using to keep him humble and dependent. And he asked the Lord three times to remove it, And the Lord graciously said no. He said, my grace is sufficient. You don't even have to ask what Jacob thought about his maiming, about having uh, to use a cane for the rest of his life, and knowing that it was the touch of God that did it. 
You don't even have to ask him what he thinks about this. And that's, he's told us. He's told us because he has established and passed down a tradition to his offspring. It's this prohibition against eating the sinew in the thigh that is on the hip socket. So whenever, whenever they're eating an animal, they've got to stay away from that little part. This is something that is not enshrined in Old Testament law, but it is definitely something that shows up in rabbinic literature. It's definitely something that the Israelites have, um, a custom that they have passed down generation to generation. Jacob is saying to his children and his descendants, he's saying, look, listen, learn. Don't eat that part. Okay, there, there, there's something really special about that part. This, this maiming of mine is, is holy. It's, it's sanctified. It's a permanent reminder to me of God's grace in my life to, to bring me to the end of myself and to cause me to cling to the Lord with all that I am and all that I have. So, so remember that. I'm remembering it every day. You guys remember the same thing. That place, that thing is holy. Brothers and sisters, think about this. We have a Savior whose maimings have been memorialized. And so we sing, Crown Him the Lord of love. Behold His hands and side. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. You will for always and ever be able to look upon the hands and the feet and the, the side of your Savior. Those wounds are going to be glorified, but they'll be there. And they will be permanent, eternal reminders of what it took to save us. But then the Lord also establishes uh, a ritual about eating. Except this time he permits us to eat symbols of his flesh and blood so that we would regularly remember his great work on our behalf. How he crushed the head of the serpent, our oldest and greatest enemy, but he went away limping. Unbeliever, how long will you continue to spurn such a wonderful Savior? How much longer are you going to live and operate under the delusion that you're actually strong and sufficient? Under the fantasy that, that you're actually getting the better of the eternal God? I, I urge you today, submit. Tap out. Cry uncle. Cry Jesus. He will save you. He will save you. And if you sense that the Spirit is working in your life, if you're ready to, to give, then I want to encourage you to, to just come down to this front pew after the service, and there will be folks there that would love to show you the Savior. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us and draw us ever nearer in increasing recognition of our total, absolute, utter dependence on Him. And may we not let go until He blesses us. Amen? Amen.